We've been sharing with you that the, that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching kingdom people how to do kingdom living. That, that's what it is. Because we have been translating, I've said this every week, and I'll maybe say it all through this every time, but we have been translated, transferred, moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. That means we were removed out from under the authority of the kingdom of darkness, has no more authority over us, and we have come under the authority of the kingdom of God. So that means we also switch kings. Before we were saved, I hate to say it, 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 it's hard to even speak it, but the devil was our master. He was. But now, no longer. Now, we have another master. What's his name? Jesus. Oh, that's, that's, if I was Jesus, I wouldn't have liked that. We can do better than that. All right. Who, who's our new master? Jesus! Amen. And we're under his authority. Okay? And, and so that's powerful. So we don't have to answer to the old master anymore. We no longer have to yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness, but as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, tonight we're going to cover Matthew 5, 21 through 26, and, and we're hitting some major topics here. So, uh, and I think we're even going further than 26, but let's, let's at least read those passages. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, will be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, can everybody say with me first? Jesus always gave us priorities. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And here he's saying, if you know your brother has ought against you, when you come into the house of God, he said, first go and make it right with your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you are thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Thank you for blessing your holy word, Lord. Now, as we continue on in Jesus' teaching on how we as kingdom people are to live, Jesus brings a message on the danger of anger. Now, remember, I've shared with you that Jesus deals with very practical, everyday, very human issues. And there's hardly a more human one than anger. Some of you got angry on the way here. Some of you are still angry. You got somebody in rush hour pulled in front of you, and Jesus lifted off of you, and Adam got on you. And it took you a while to get it off of you. You got angry. Anger is a part of life. And you know what? There, there's not anything wrong with some anger. Matter of fact, there's some things we ought to be angry about. I'm angry. <laughs> I am. What are you angry about, Pastor? I, I'm angry that our nation is even considering fooling with 
God's creation of marriage. That makes me angry. Now, the Bible talks about righteous anger. There is some anger that if you're not angry, I wonder about you. If you're not angry, I wonder what's wrong with you if you're not angry about some things. But there's another kind of anger that Jesus warns us about. Remember, Jesus often used the phrase that he does here. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, talking about the Old Testament law. But I say to you. Now remember, he's not doing away with or marginalizing the law in any way, shape, or form. He's not doing that. What he's doing is he's spiritualizing a one-dimensional law that only dealt with action. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, all the don'ts. And that only dealt with the single dimension of action. But Jesus takes the commandments deeper, wider, higher. He spiritualizes them, and he takes the commandments from action to a matter of the heart that leads to the action. This is what he's going to do with anger. He's going to do this with lust, as we're going to see tonight. He does it with charitable deeds. Don't do your charitable deeds to be seen of men, and so on and so forth. And with many other issues, Jesus takes a single one-dimensional commandment and he broadens it so that we understand how to avoid committing the action by dealing with our heart. Now, when it comes to anger, Jesus takes the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That's the Hebrew, that's the real meaning, not you shall not kill, because in war we kill, but it's not murder. Right? To defend our nation, we sometimes have to go to war. And um, Jesus never said he was against war. He said he was against murder. And murder is when you kill someone without a just cause. Now, he says, first, you shall not murder. He goes straight to the heart. And he tells us not to nurse anger toward a brother. If we do so, we will be in danger of the judgment. Now, most murders follow on the heels of anger not reined in. Jesus says this kind of anger can lead to the judgment. Now, when he talks about judgment, I don't believe he's talking about a human court yet. Since a natural human court can't judge our heart. You know, we're not going to go to jail for having anger in our heart. What judgment is he talking about? I believe he's talking about the judgment of God who sees all. And if we're walking around with anger that is not reined in, we're nursing anger, rehearsing anger, we are cultivating anger and living in anger, that eventually God the judge steps in and brings judgment or chastening to anger that is in our heart. So Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, eventually, especially if you're a child of God, God's going to step in and you're in danger of his judgment, his chastening. I don't know about you, but if I get angry at somebody and I stay that way, the Lord doesn't let me get away with that. Matter of fact, the longer I go on with God, the less he lets me get away with. Isn't that right? 
Have you ever noticed that? When you were first saved, you know, there was all kinds of excess flesh in your life and all these things. But the more you grow in him, the, the tighter he pulls in the reins because we're growing in holiness and the less he lets us get away with. And when it comes to anger, if I walk around with anger, if I go to sleep angry with the wrong kind of anger, the Holy Ghost is going to deal with me about that. Okay? So whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of his judgment. Now, what we're going to see in dealing with anger and lust and other issues as the Sermon on the Mount goes on is a progression taking place, just like we did with the Beatitudes. First, there is anger resulting in God's judgment. But next, we see an increase in the level of anger that results in vicious attacks on a person's character. So Jesus is painting for us a picture of anger and how it grows if we don't rein it in. At first, we're just kind of walking around stewing, kind of mad at somebody, and we're not reining it in. We're not forgiving. We're just staying angry. But you know, anger um, never remains the same. It's going to grow. It's going to metastasize if you don't deal with anger. So... This person now, Jesus, shows progressing in anger where now they're verbalizing their anger at another human being. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means empty-headed idiot. That's what it means. <laughs> You're going, I said that just this week. Just no. <laughs> Empty-headed idiot. Shall be in danger of the council. Shall be in danger of the council. Now notice, first in danger of the judgment if you don't deal with anger. But now we're in danger with the council. The judgment had to do with God, but the council is human beings. You know what he's saying? Now we're dealing with court. So what is, what is Jesus after here? You've got to look beyond the word raka. It's kind of fun to say raka. It's really a powerful word. Can we all do it together? Are you ready? And I want some feeling put into this. I mean, it's fun. Raka. So it just, it's got some umph to it. Are you ready? One, two, three. Raka. Now that ought to be the last time you ever say it. But isn't that a, just a kind of a cool word? Too bad we can't say it. What would somebody do if you looked at him and said, Raka? Then you can get away with it because they don't know what you're saying. But here's the deal. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means empty-headed idiot, notice what he says, we're progressing, shall be in danger of the council, the Sanhedrin, which is a human court. The idea here is that Raka, or empty-headed idiot, is a derogatory, hateful, degrading term of contempt that was murderous in its ability to damage the inward heart and soul. So here's the deal. Jesus would give us a word like raka, but you got to look at what has happened to the person who says the word raka. Look at the progression of their heart in anger. Because now they've moved from anger to contempt. From anger to contempt. Not only am I mad at you, but I can't stand you. That's the idea. Now, do you see that anger has moved 
from just being mad at somebody. Because you can be mad at somebody and, and not have contempt for them. But if you don't deal with anger, that's the whole idea of Jesus' teaching. If you don't deal with it at the beginning, it's going to progress. And it goes from temporary sort of simmering anger to contempt for this person. Now I've got a real relationship issue here. I mean, think about this in terms of your marriage, if you're married tonight, or the key relationships of your life, if you don't deal with anger, then that anger is going to, like I said, metastasize, is going to grow. And now Jesus said, when you start moving in contempt, now you're in danger of court. Because anger that goes into contempt is going to begin acting out in ways that can get you in trouble. But raka, you're, 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 so the, it, it's contempt that you're spewing when you say that. Remember the Bible says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. That old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, words never hurt me, that n- never was there a, a bigger lie that we said on the playground in third grade than that one. Because sticks and stones do indeed break your bones and Words do indeed break the soul and break the heart and break the life. Words are powerful. Words can never hurt me is a great big lie. Words hurt us all the time. So Jesus, you see, is trying to prevent what finally morphs into murder. So he says, he says, if you get angry and you don't deal with it, and you're going on with it when you should have forgiven, then it's without a cause. And if you don't deal with that, it's going to move on to the next level where now you are spewing invective and this person is on the receiving end of words that break them and can actually verbally murder them, harm them, degrade them, dehumanize them. And Jesus said, you know what? When you're on this level, you may end up acting out in a way that puts you in proximity to the Sanhedrin, the court. I told you I watch forensic files all the time. If, I, if there was no forensic files, I would cancel all of my cable. Because the only reason I have it, and boy, does it cost me to watch forensic files. <laughs> but I watch it. Because I see human drama played out all the time. I see these principles played out all the time. You have these people who, who are just great, you know, well, I say they're just good American, you know, run-of-the-mill middle-class people, sometimes rich people, sometimes real poor people. And they're just living their life out until an anger gets in their heart. And they don't deal with that anger. And it moves to the next level. And you'll watch in these, these crime shows that I watch, real crime shows. I don't like anything Hollywood. I just want to see something that really happened in life And how it played out, that's what I want to see. Because I always go back to Jesus' teaching. If you don't deal with anger, anger will deal with you. And so I'll see these people who eventually, they go from just being angry to spewing invective. And this relationship goes to a whole new toxic level. And finally, if they don't deal with it, then they end up killing somebody. And it'll interview them at the end of the show. And they'll say, I don't know how it happened. I do. I always go back to Jesus' teaching, who understood human nature better than anybody on the planet. And Jesus said, if you don't deal with anger, it's going to move to another level. And if you don't deal with that level, it's going to move to the next level. And that's how murder happens. It happens, it begins in the heart. 
According to Jesus, when the anger inside you grows to the point of speaking murderous, hate-filled, venomous words of contempt to another, you're in danger of ending up in court. Anger on that level is growing out of control. And anything can happen, even illegalities, if you don't deal with that anger. And see, anger becomes bigger than you. How many of you know what I'm talking about tonight? The rest of you, you've never been mad? Let me try that again. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You see that. I know you do. So finally, now Jesus tells, uh, shows us the last level. Finally, the progression of anger reaches the worst of all when you say, You fool! Now to me, raka sounds worse than fool. I would have switched it. But Jesus knew what he was saying. Because you know what's behind that word in the original language? Here's the deal. Because you're probably thinking, what's the big deal with calling somebody a fool? He's pointing out not so much the word fool itself as the settled hatred that is now behind the word. Starts out, you're mad. You should have forgiven, so you're continuing your anger, so it's without a cause because you should have forgiven. Then it goes to the next level. Now you're contemptuous. You can't stand the person. You're calling them raka, empty-headed idiot, degrading terms. But now it's moved from contempt to hatred. Now, let me ask you a question. Can this happen to somebody who is saved and going to heaven? Yes, no, got a case of the no-nods tonight. Let me, let me see. Yes, can it happen for somebody going to heaven that knows Jesus? You better, of course, because who's he talking to here? He is talking to kingdom people. He's saying, now that you're in the kingdom, I want to teach you how to succeed in kingdom living and not fall prey to the landmine of anger. Because kingdom people are to be free of these things. Okay? So now it's hatred, and this final stage of anger has morphed into deep, unrepentant hatred. And the person that nurses this level of hatred is in danger of hell. Now, let me tell you what I think Jesus might have been driving out there when he said hell. The Greek word for hell here is Gehenna. Gehenna, when his disciples and his listeners heard him say that word, here's what went through their head. Gehenna referred to the place where Solomon, of all people, erected a high place for the horrible idol called Molech. You can read about this in 1 Kings 11.7. The incredible tragedy of Solomon, the one that gave his Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. The one who prayed for wisdom and God gave it to him. The one who had the finger, or the, uh, the, the world at his fingertips. The one who had... Uh, the world by the tail. The whole world came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but he hooked up with the wrong relationships that took him into idolatry. And in his old age, Solomon literally went and built high places for the worship of the idol called Molech, where children were sacrificed live in the fire. There at Gehenna, the fires of that God, Molech, had received the bloody offerings of infant sacrifice under Ahaz and Manasseh. 
And Solomon made the way for that, paved the way for it. This man of wisdom is simply incomprehensible, except it's not incomprehensible. It's comprehensible. Here's why. We understand the power of wrong relationships, don't we? That there's nothing more persuasive than a relationship that your heart is involved in that if you hook up, that's why the Bible says come apart, come out of there. Get away from, from uh, relationships that are really close because their God will become your God. That's why as believers you ought to be very careful the friends you choose. Because all it takes is one wrong relationship where your heart jumps in. And that person, if they don't love your God and walk in his ways and cherish Jesus, they can carry you away. And that's what happened to Solomon. So when Jesus said, Gehenna, he who has this level of hatred is in danger of Gehenna, he could have been talking about your life being consumed with the fire of hatred. Now, I think with lost people, hatred can actually play a part in carrying you into hell because you're living a life that is consumed with hatred where, where you don't see the love of God, you don't turn to God, you don't forgive people, uh, and that hatred just is one of the driving forces of your lost life. But for the believer, I believe it might mean that if you're not careful, just like things were consumed with fire in the place called Gehenna, that if you're not careful as a believer, your life can be consumed and burned up alive with hatred if you don't forgive. Now, I know this is powerful stuff, but you know what, folks? This is where we live. And I've got to tell you, I've pastored long enough to see believers do this. Oh, I've seen believers. I've seen marriages. I've seen people uh, get involved in such vitriol with one another, children of God, that, that it literally consumed them. It burned them up. They had to either forgive or really have their lives ruined. And so Jesus is warning us here. He's telling us, be careful with anger. It begins with just kind of being mad. I'm mad, I'm not going to forgive this person. Then it moves on to contempt. I, 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 I really can't stand you. And then it goes further, I hate you. And that hatred consumes your life instead of the love of God and the power of God and walking in the will of God. I don't want to be hate-driven I don't want to be anger-driven. I don't want to be lust-driven. I want to be Jesus-driven. Come on, right? Now next, uh, Jesus continues with the theme of anger. And he lets us know that we should also help our brothers and sisters to be free of anger that is directed toward us if we possibly can. He said, if you come to church and you come to offer your gift, I don't know what the gift uh, might mean. Jesus could have been talking about a tithe. He could have been talking about your gift of worship. Let's just say it's worship. You come to church to offer your worship, and as soon as you start worshiping, the Holy Ghost checks you and says, hey, you remember that so-and-so has ought against you, and, and the, the implication is justifiably so. You know they've got ought against you because you offended them in one way or another. And whether you feel or not that you did what they think you did, you know they think you did. 
So he says, here's how important it is that there's no anger simmering in the body of Christ. He said, leave your worship at the altar and go find that person, and if at all possible, make it right with them, then come and offer your gift. What are you doing there? You are helping them defuse anger so that they're saved from the danger of anger. Oh, church, anger is a terrible thing. Anger will give you ulcers. Anger will make you a bitter man. Ladies, I'm going to tell you something. Anger will change your countenance and do to you what Maybelline and Max Factor can't fix. (laughs) I'm serious. Anger will give you a furrowed brow, a tough countenance. Have Have you ever looked at somebody... Have you, ever, have you ever noticed how sin changes somebody's countenance? Have you, ever, have you ever run into somebody you haven't seen in years, and they come up to you and say, Hi, remember me? And you go, Oh, oh, yeah. Good to see you. But inside you're thinking, What happened to you? And you find out they've been living in sin. You know, if you walk with Jesus and walk in love, it is good for your looks. You want to be good looking? Walk with Jesus. It'll help you be good looking. So Jesus said, if you can help your brother or sister, unplug from anger, do it. That's how important it is in the body of Christ. So not only are we responsible to deal with our own anger, but if we can be a peacemaker with a brother or with a sister, we should help them in extinguishing the fire of anger. It won't always work, and I'm going to tell you right now, though some people are saved, they are ornery as the day is long. Some people don't want reconciliation. This is why Paul wrote, if it be possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There are people that I have contacted through the years um, that I knew were offended with me for one reason or another, and most of them want reconciliation. But I've had a few say, you know what, not interested. Not interested. I say, you know what, as far as it depends on me, I've done my part. That is when you turn around, you give it to God, and you walk down that narrow road that leads to life and stay on your journey with Jesus. Because now it's not on you, it's on them. You can't twist somebody's arm and say, forgive me. You can't. But you should try. That's the whole gist of the verse. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Romans twelve eighteen. Now Jesus finished his teacher, teaching on anger with the exhortation to do all in our power to pacify an angry adversary who is taking us to court and pacify it or do your best to do so before you ever get there. Jesus said, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Now notice he's still continuing in the theme of anger because now you've got an adversary that's angry at you. He hasn't left the theme of anger yet. He's still on it. But now we've got an adversary, somebody who we have, and again, the implication is we have done something that they're justified in being angry at us, and because we we haven't worked it out yet, they are taking matters to court. Now, Jesus understood human nature like no one else, 
and he understood court like no one else. Let me tell you what he was not saying here. He's not saying to give an adversary everything they want, even if it's unreasonable. Just lay down and die. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, well, real quick, settle out of court anytime somebody wants to take advantage of you. Jesus did not teach us to lay down and let people kick us around just because they're having a bad day or had a fight with their wife. Can I just put it real East Texas blunt? Jesus didn't teach wimpism. Well, yeah, he said turn the other cheek. Oh, I'm going to deal with that later. That is so misunderstood. You better have a good reason for slapping me in the cheek. Or I ain't turning the other one. And now I'm going to get there later. But Jesus didn't teach us to go, oh, yeah, well, just beat me up because I'm a Christian. Just go ahead and beat on me. Hallelujah. Glory to God. That is not what he taught. That is not what he taught. And I think that's part of what's hurting the Western church. The Western church ought to be standing up to so many things, but they just lay down and say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I'm just turning the other cheek. Hey, there are times we're to fight. Okay, now, I'm going to explain that later. So don't go out of here and say, well, Pastor Jeff, he's gone off. Because he said we ought to fight instead of turning the other cheek. It's not what I said. So much of what Jesus taught is so misunderstood. So misunderstood. Here's the implication. The adversary is justifiably offended that's taking you to court. That's, that's where Jesus is coming from. Something we have done has rightly angered him to the point of taking us to court. Jesus said that if there's any reasonable way while you are headed to court, before you end up in the court, to extinguish the anger and make peace with that person, you are wise if you do it. Because there's no telling what a jury is going to decide. Otherwise, that person's anger might be instrumental in taking us before the judge, who in turn agrees with the offender's case and turns you over to the officer who carries you off to jail. In other words, here's the deal. Sometimes the best thing you can do is admit your mistake, humble yourself before the offended person and seek mercy. I can feel you thinking. You could hear a pin drop on a shag carpet just then. Because <laughs> you're thinking. Isn't it amazing how Jesus took us into all of the possibilities and intricacies of normal human life and taught us how to be and how to do? Isn't that amazing? All right, now we're really switching gears from anger to lust and adultery. Now, Jesus is tracking the same principle as he has with anger. The seventh commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. Now here, he's talking about more than committing the act. He's also going to add breadth and width and height and depth. He's going to spiritualize it and make it a matter of the heart, not just of the one-dimensional action, don't commit the act of adultery. He takes us to where adultery begins. What did Jesus say? It's out of the heart that come all the sins of our life. Adulteries, fornications, murders, idolatry, all of those things flow out of where? Say it with me. The heart. So Jesus is going to 
tell us adultery begins in the heart. He said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. Now Moses' commandment dealt only with the action. Don't commit the act of adultery. And as with anger, which leads to murder, Jesus' commandment helps us to deal with where adultery begins before the action takes place. In other words, you can avoid the tragedy of the action by dealing with your heart before the action occurs. Moses just said, don't do it. Jesus said, let me tell you how to avoid doing it. Now, the intent of the word lust, because I know a lot of guys, they, they hear this, well, a lot of women too, they hear this, you know, whoever looks on a woman and lusts after her, and guys immediately say, well, I'm done. Now, can I get real with you all tonight? Okay, I'm going to, thank you. Men are, men are sight-driven. Men are sight-driven. And women are more emotion-driven, heart-driven. Men are sight-driven. So when I read, when, when, and I guarantee you when Jesus said this and his disciples were standing there, he said, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her, they said, well, then blind me. Because <laughs> how in the world am I going to not look at a woman and lust? That's what they would have thought. And I think guys read that verse and they say, well, forget it. I, I can't even become a Christian. Because how can I do that? Now, we've got to understand the meaning of the word lust here. It is stronger in the Greek than in the English. It is not, guys, the passing glance. It is not even the momentary impulse of desire. But it is the continued, sustained gaze by which the impulse is deliberately cherished until it becomes a passion. It's the lingering look that says, watch this, if I could, I would. Nobody can avoid, nobody, the initial recognition and appreciation of an attractive person. I don't think God ever intended that. I mean, you know um, what Adam said when he saw Eve. Whoa, man, that's what woman came from. Whoa, man. And thank you, Jesus. And that's what woman came from. No, I'm, just, I'm playing with you. But I've often thought that. But I guarantee you, that was his response. Wow. Now, do you think God wanted him to say, huh, wow, well, you know, thanks a lot, God. Whew, hard on the eyes. Do you think God wanted that? God wanted him to say, wow, thank you, God. Hallelujah. That's what God wanted him to do. Come on. So there's no way that we can play this game that if you see an attractive person, you, you're not, you have no ability to appreciate an attractive person. That's crazy. It's not going to happen. Either way, male to female or female to male, it's not going to happen. That's not Jesus' point. He's addressing that one who decides to keep looking with lustful desire, who nurses their lust, indulges their lust, 
and intends to carry through with their lust if they could or can. This is what leads to actual adultery. This is what Jesus was talking about. This is what David did when the Bible says in 2 Samuel eleven two, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. You know what David did not do? He didn't turn away. He kept looking until finally he called for her. Do you know that the Bible uses the very same Hebrew word concerning or regarding Samson when he saw Delilah? It says in the Bible, David saw Bathsheba, and it says Samson, who I'm talking about this Sunday, the he-man with the she-weakness, Samson saw Delilah. I looked up that word saw. It's amazing what's in one little three-letter word. He didn't just see her. That's not what it means. Oh, I see that sparrow. I see that, you know, dog. That's not what it's saying. It means she was in his eyes. Literally, it reads in the Hebrew, right to left, woman in eyes. She was in his eyes, stuck where she couldn't get out. In other words, he froze on her. Delilah, in my eyes. Bathsheba, in my eyes. That's the look Jesus is talking about. That's the adultery of the heart. Now Jesus, and, and by the way, both David and Samson, what they end up doing, they followed through. Because once that level of lust got there, and, and that, that woman was in, in eyes, in my eyes, stuck, and I, I'm really in freeze frame here, that's the kind of thing that led them to their downfall. So, next, Jesus uses absurdity to make a point. And he uses two members of our body directly involved in the act of adultery. The eye that lusts and the hand that reaches out to act. And he uses them to make an absurdity. Hyperbole, he's exaggerating. He's using hyperbole, exaggeration, to make a a point about the, the seriousness of runaway lust. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell, Gehenna, again. Now, unfortunately, people through history have taken that literally. I've read so many accounts. It's terrible. It's tragic. People have gouged their eyes out, have cut off their hands, thinking that that's going to solve the lust issue. But you know what? You could gouge your eyes out tonight and cut your hands off tonight, and it's not going to get lust out of your heart. It's not going to solve the problem. Jesus is just telling us, here's how important it is that you not be a lust-driven person because it will lead to the wreckage of your life. Well, then how do I deal with lust? Well, the Bible tells us how. The only way to truly be free of lust or anger or any of the things he's going to deal with, is to daily and hourly walk in the Spirit. 
allowing the Holy Spirit to sanctify your heart. That's the only way. Listen to what Paul wrote. He said in Romans 8, 13, here's the deal. He said, if by the Spirit, let's say this together. Let's read this out loud together, can we? If by the Spirit, don't, don't say you, say I. If by the Spirit I put to death the deeds of the body, I will live. You have got to feed that spirit man inside of you, which is my soapbox. It is my broken record. It is what I talk about all the time. If you don't spend time with the Lord on a daily basis, or at least really, really often, then your spirit man is not going... You know, Kathy today called me. She drove away from the house. She called me. She said, hey, honey, can you go out there and put some water on my plant in the front yard because it's wilting really badly. It needs water bad. And I went out there, and here's this plant. And I poured a glass full of water on it. And do you know that when we left tonight, I noticed it was happy. Your spirit man's no different. Some of you coming to church this way. You say, you better preach me up. No, you ought to come in, hallelujah, this way. If everybody came in full of the spirit, we'd have revival. God gave the Holy Spirit so that we would have power to witness and also so that we could live out the Christian life. You cannot do it. We'll never do it. I would never lay Christianity on somebody that didn't have the Holy Spirit. Because they could never do it. For me, the profound value of Jesus' teaching here is that if you follow his advice, it will help you to stop a sin in its tracks before it becomes a full-blown tragedy. Is there anger in your heart? Practice forgiveness and stop murder, either verbal or literal, in its tracks. Is there lust in your heart? Repent of it. Spend time in the word and in prayer. And avail yourself of the power of God's spirit. If you feed that inner man, that inner man will control you. If you feed the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit within you will rule your life. But if you don't, and it, and it essentially figuratively wilts, your flesh will take over. And your flesh is going to lust. Your flesh is going to be angry. Your flesh is going to act like flesh acts. Flesh is as flesh does. Now I'm going to close with the big D. Next, it only makes sense that Jesus now deals with marriage and divorce since much of the divorce takes place in order to give vent to pent up lusts in the heart that are looking for a freedom from marital ties. Look what Jesus said. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him, get, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now hang on, let me explain. In Jesus' day, a woman was sent packing for the most trivial and ridiculous reasons. I mean, if she didn't flip the eggs right, I'm giving you a certificate of divorce, get out of here. It literally had come down to if a man found anything distasteful in his wife, even if he decided he was simply tired of her, he could send her away. You know what they had in Jesus' day before he told us what he told us? No fault divorce. 
That's what they had. No-fault divorce. You don't need a reason. Irreconcilable differences covers all of it. I've often wondered, what does that mean? You couldn't forgive each other? Irreconcilable differences? What's that? To me, that's a catch-all for a lot of not-so-great reasons. Jesus took a stand against this abuse of women because they were the ones that got the bad end of this. If they were sent out in divorce, uh, they had no standing in that society. They went into poverty, went into prostitution, went into having zero, nothing. So he took a stand. Every feminist ought to love Jesus because nobody stood for women like Jesus. Jesus changed the way women are treated all over the world. That's why he, Jesus ought to be every feminist hero. I don't expect that to happen tomorrow, but it, it should. He said that he who divorces his wife lays her under a strong temptation to commit adultery. Because what's that woman going to do? She's going to go out and look for another man to take care of her. And that was wrong. The husband was putting her in a bad position. He also taught that unjust divorce was no divorce in the sight of God. It was not valid. He said, there's only one reason you can divorce, the cause of fornication. That's the Greek word porneo or porneo, and it's, it covers all sexual sin. So unless there is sexual sin on her part, then guess what? You can't. Lean on that exception clause. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. I can't add to it or take away from it. So any man who married a woman who was unjustifiably put away, you know, I just don't like you anymore. I got contempt for you. We don't get along. We had a fight last week. I've been thinking about it. I think you need to go. Jesus said, if another man came along and married that woman when she was put away for no good reason at all, he caused her, her first husband, caused her to commit adultery. And the man who's marrying that woman who was unjustifiably put away is committing adultery. Because God is saying, I don't see the end of that marriage you may have gotten a piece of paper that said you're divorced. What's a piece of paper when it comes to divorce? He said, the covenant you made in front of me, I haven't dissolved it because he doesn't like you anymore. I told him I saved this for last. Because our culture... When the Supreme Court passed no-fault divorce, I think it was in the late 60s, early 70s, one of the many atrocities and catastrophes they passed, no-fault divorce, abortion, no prayer in school, the things they passed in the 60s and early 70s wrought havoc on our country to this day. Abortion, 72, I think 73, that was passed. Now... This the whole thing of no-fault divorce, you don't need any reason. Do you understand the wreckage that came to the American home after they passed that? 
Because now I don't need to read. Do you know the court used to make you forgive each other and work things out? Court used to do that. Not for no-fault divorce. Well, we just got irreconcilable differences. We can't get along. I don't like her anymore. He doesn't like me anymore. I don't even need to give you a reason. No-fault divorce. And, boy, divorce swept the American landscape after that ruling. I know this opens up a thousand questions that we could spend a whole evening on, and I, and I might just pick a Wednesday and spend a whole evening on this. Suffice it to say, Jesus was for marriage. And he would fight for marriage. And he wants us to fight for our marriages. So, well, Jeff, I'm two marriages, three marriages, four marriages in. Well, then you got one right now, fight for it. There comes a time where you've got to stand up and say, here I take my stand, I can do no other. I'm standing on the word of God. Amen. So can we stand together tonight? And next week, foolish vows and the second mile. Oh, it's good. Foolish vows and the second mile. It's a great, great message. How many of you are glad you came to church tonight? All right.